doing those things is going to be a little bit less fun. So uh, that's probably enough out of me for round one. And let me turn it back to my colleague for a rebuttal. <laughs> yes. So the understanding, uh, I had a professor, Dr. Warren Smith, in a seminary uh, who tried to help us uh, who were learning to explain the afterlife what it would be like. Because in our creed, we have the phrase, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And that brings into the question the idea of soul, body, all this stuff. And um, Warren Smith, you have to understand, is probably the most rigid Professor, if you could draw a picture of a boarding school teacher, this is who it was. And he said, notice, if you understand the eschaton, which is a fancy theology word for the end of times, if you understand the eschaton to mean that we will be reunited with who we are, who we have been, and who God will call us to be, then we will all have eschatological afros. Hair being big, all of our hair that we've ever cut off will be realized and, and remembered. Um, but it's this uh, sense in which uh, our identity, when we say the resurrection of the body, our understanding uh, that we often fail to recognize is uh, lost in the Christian understanding of the second coming of Christ. You see it badly misrepresented Thomas's editorial. Uh, if you the Tim LaHaye novels left behind. No, that's bad fiction. It's not good Christian doctrine. Um, I've actually, that's more than Thomas's editorial. That's a lot of people's editorial. Um, but this idea that uh, we will be uh, there to enjoy God forever in our, in our Christian tradition is um, something that we cling to, we hope for, and helps us understand uh, that for which we strive on this earth. I, I liked how you phrased it. Um, the things that, if you enjoy this life, if you enjoy the things of piety, of mercy, of godly living, then that's what you are preparing in the life to come. Um, and the options before us are the other. It's going to be a, a different understanding. I, I don't have a rebuttal because he's. <laughs> you all heard that, right? Uh, so I don't know, maybe this is a good time for us to open up for questions, comments, concerns, we'll kind of go back and forth, and uh, you can ask a question about your own faith tradition or uh, the faith tradition you didn't come with. We are going to ask that you please go home with the religion you started with. Uh, it looks bad for my numbers if, like, you know. <laughs> Same.
that if God is infinite, all-knowing, all-seeing, incorporeal, then we have no way, how can you even get close to God if God is everywhere? Right? So in some sense, by the way, I'm not going to speak for Reverend Martin, but Christianity attempts to answer that question by saying, right, there are parts of God, there are aspects of God that are closer to humanity, right? In some sense, right, Jesus is an answer to that question. Um, you know, Judaism says you just have to do your best to get close, and God kind of reaches out. But the essence is that in our living form, um, encompassed by flesh, that there's a limit to how close we, we get to God. When we leave the limitations of physicality, we can get closer to God. And you can get mystics arguing about how close you can actually get to God. It's kind of like, you know, on the driver's test, how close can you get to the curve without hitting it and losing points? So how close can you get to God without losing yourself? Um, and this is, whether it's New Age traditions or even the mystical aspect within Judaism, you know, the question is how close can you be, can you get to God while still being you is, is really the challenge, right? And so, look, the essence in many mystical traditions, the idea is to eliminate the self, right? So, you know, Buddhism, the idea is if I don't want anything, then I won't suffer, right? Whereas Jews, we say if there is no self, then whose arthritis is this? But, but there's, but that, I think that, that's one way of thinking, to my mind, that's one way of thinking about it. And I think, the way that I think of it is two different ideas of, two different dimensions, really. Um, in the Christian tradition, there's a, you know, another dimension out there that I have no idea of what it exists. And what that looks like, I'm not certain. I, I think I'm very linear in my thinking of, you know, what you learn in your basic algebra, geometry classes. You start at X and you go to Y and Y goes on forever on this plane. I think that there's some, in our Christian tradition, there's some plane that's doing all sorts of ins and outs and where we go after this life is on that other plane that comes in and out of, of this life. And that is based upon the sense of God being all-knowing, all-encompassing, uh, all-present uh, at all times. And I think that it is uh, not necessary, I wouldn't couch on the idea of closeness to God, but relationship with God, I think would be you know, a minor tweak in the differences between um, understandings. Got any? So 
the disclaimer there is like one of those at the bottom of the emails. Please note that all opinions here within do not belong to the United Methodist Church or necessarily the Christian tradition. It's fully presented throughout the context of Christianity solely to those who represent it. Um, I think that we uh, can learn a lot from the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. In our Christian tradition, when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, uh, they began... I always come back to Genesis 3, where the serpent cursed Adam and Eve and said, Your desire, Adam, is no longer for me. You will be defined against the sweat of your brow, the work that you do, and you will toil against the earth forevermore. The serpent will be, and then to Evie said, you know, you will, you know, desire your husband, your relationship, your desire is no longer for me as your creator. The serpent will be at your child's foot, um, whatever else that's there. Again, I'm Methodist, not Baptist. I can't quote any of this. Um, but that... I can only quote it in Hebrew. Really, apologies to the Baptists tonight. Um, that is not fair. So, uh, it is the way that the world exists, even in its best moments, is not God's plan for the end. Uh, in the finality of time, God has final say, but we don't live in the finality of time. The best analogy that I've been able to come up with and think through it is we're in the midst of a five-act play, um, and that right now we're in, at least in the Christian tradition, uh, you've got creation, um, the fall, uh, the people of Israel and Jesus and the church as broadly defined, and then um, the final virgin. We know how the story ends, we're just not there yet. And so that's how I would uh, answer the question of why do bad things happen to people? Because we do not live in the final state uh, of God's final victory. So um, I don't necessarily have a better answer, but I have a few different I'll give you a few answers I don't like. So there's a book in the Bible called Job that some of you may have encountered. So one classic view was if something that basically to deny the question, to say if something bad happens to you, it means that you must have done something wrong to deserve it, right? Whether it's in this life, or formal life, like somehow something you did, right? And so you better search your deeds. So there's an example of this in Israel. In the Talmud, there's a discussion that says that one one of the things that can happen if you're mezuzah, so I need to back up a second. In the Jewish tradition, in Deuteronomy, it says you shall put these words upon the doorposts of your home and upon your gates. Yes, so if you go to a Jewish home or a Jewish building, you will see there's actually a little box on the door that, and within that is a parchment holding two passages from scripture. Okay. It's called a mezuzah. And there is a rabbi in the Talmud who says, if your mezuzah, is not done properly, if there's a typo in your mezuzah, then your children, the children who live in that home are not protected. So there was a bus crash in Israel a number of years ago, and a bunch of rabbis went scrambling. They said, we're gonna, we're gonna look and see the homes of the kids who died, clearly, right, we gotta change their mezuzahs. That must be what's wrong. I do not, I actually don't think that's the way the world works. Um, so another view, what God ends up saying to Job is Job, God basically says, look, Job, um, he's kind of channeling um, Jack Nicholson and a few good men. He's like, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Basically just says to Job, like, 
Basically, where were you when I taught the morning stars to sing? Where were you when I had the goats learning how to forage? The next time I create the universe, I'll be sure to ask your opinion, is basically what God says. And Job was like, okay, fine, enough. Um, I, I don't like that answer either, because the whole point, God made us as questioning beings. So I actually like Reverend Martin's answer a great deal. Um, I would add that um, there is a sense in which in Judaism we have an idea that in fact we are the answer to that question. So there's an idea in Judaism of, there's a Latin term for it called imitatio Dei, which means imitating God. But the idea is that it is our, God basically left us in charge. Right? So right now at my house, my 16 year old, my 13 year old, and my 10 year old are in charge. I can only hope that they're doing a better job than humanity is doing here on this earth. Um, but basically, like, God left us in charge, and, you know, it is our job to maintain the world, right? It is our job to, metaphysically speaking, change the cat's litter box and so on. And things are going to go wrong. Um, but it, it's not that it's anyone's fault. It's a sign of, like, we... We have been given the power to make things right, and we are still getting our legs as partners with God in doing that, um, right? So God made human beings with the innate ability to have cancer. God gave human beings the ability to develop medicine and doctors. Um, you know, and so many times, right, when things go wrong in the world, like before you go blaming God, you can look a little bit, you can look a little bit closer. And basically God left us God, after he created the world, left us in charge, and that's where a lot of the trouble started. Uh, next question. Long as you. Stephen. Um, so, two questions related to each other. One, is there a, and you can find the terms, um, is there a sort of Judaism position on the And two, within um, Christianity in the afterlife, um, Everything is sort of defined, as my understanding, uh, based on our relationship, your relationship with Jesus Christ and everything else. Is there a, I would just say, a Methodist interpretation of the potential purgatory and not a way of reconciling God after death? Oh, that, was, that was an easy one. Um, so, let me, so, you know, they say heaven is a place on earth, um, Gehenna is too. So there's actually, in Jerusalem, there is a valley that separates the old city of Jerusalem from, um, from, the, from the new city. It's called Gay Ben Hinnom, uh, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. And it got a bad rap uh, about 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago, in the days of Jeremiah um, and some of the other prophets. Because that is where the most horrible pagan rites occurred. That is where child sacrifice was practiced. I'm occasionally tempted myself, but that was where... And so it became synonymous with sort of the worst place you could go. Um, and so if you look in um, Talmudic literature, there are places that talk about Gehinom, but there's not, there's not really a monolithic voice on that topic. In general, what the Talmud says is basically everyone has a share in the world to come, Jews and non-Jews alike. 
except for, and then it gives a list of specific people who did something so horrible. Um, and generally, the only thing that you can do that actually gets, that actually like keeps you from heaven, is leading other people astray from their faith. So like even like murderers, telemarketers, right? Anyone <laughs> could find their way into heaven if they repent. Like basically, the only unforgivable sin is leading others astray. And otherwise, there is this idea. So in Judaism, um, some of you may be familiar. There's a custom of saying a prayer called Kaddish for a year um, after a person has passed away. And the the mystical tradition is that when a person um, passes away, it may take up to a year for their soul to be cleansed, and a year is the outside limit before they um, are able to be with God. Um, and so the, the idea is that that is where that takes place, and so we say Kaddish for up to a year to sort of correspond to that time. That's sort of the mystical um, idea, if you will. I'm going to turn things over to my colleague for part two. So uh, Jesus uses the word Gehenna in Matthew 25, where he gets into a very, um, it's uh, Jesus's apocalyptic times. And he's talking about the very same values. I think at that time it was a fire burn pit, uh, basically is what it had in, converted into, if I'm not mistaken. And so when he's saying, I will throw you out to, their, to the Gehenna, he's talking about the rubbish pile at that time. Um, a very physical place, um, you know. To I was reminded of something that is not directly related to your question, but something that you were mentioning earlier. Um, there are uh, there's heaven on earth and there's hell on earth, and this was the this was Jesus's understanding of hell on earth. And we live in a world where people are living on garbage piles, and there is hell on earth. Um, that's where the good news of salvation comes in. Um, and why Jesus was so, uh, as you said, the, the leading people astray uh, is one of the grievous sins. Jesus says that if uh, you cause someone to stumble, it would have been better that you never have been born. In fact, it would have been better if a millstone, uh, not in a real millstone, not like one of these fake millstones that you see in apartment complexes, but a millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the ocean. Um, I think that that's a, a, a very a warning, a very code warning for uh, anyone who would cause uh, deceit for what God has endured. I don't think there's a Methodist understanding necessarily of purgatory, of the sense of waiting, of what happens. Um, I, My own understanding is that uh, I honestly don't know what happens in the next life, and if a person has said no to God in this life, it doesn't rule out the possibility that God will say yes to them in the life to come. Um, that's borderline universalism, which could get me kicked out of the United Methodist Church, but, you know, I, I don't know what happens next. <laughs> so um, that's there's no direct correlation to the Catholic understanding of purgatory, of waiting. Um, what uh, I, Our communion liturgy, when we have uh, the... Lord's Supper, which Jesus celebrated on the night in which uh, he was preparing to be crucified, um, we have the phrase in our liturgy, until Christ comes in final victory. I don't even, I don't even know what that means, but I find comfort in it, um, in that, the, as Bono said, 
Um, the battle's just begun to claim the victory Jesus won. If you're a fan of U2, um, the, the band's not. I'm a fan of U2 as well. So that's a very Methodist way of answering your question of, eh, you don't know. Jewish idea is that really pretty much 
everyone gets in. It's just a question of how hard it is to get there, what it is that you need to do to be ready. So there's actually a Jewish prayer called Vidui, which is part of the Yom Kippur liturgy, the liturgy of the Day of Atonement. And there is a tradition that one says the Vidui prayer, the confessional, um, when one is on one's deathbed. One has to have the presence of mind to do that, but I'm often summoned to say Vidui with someone who might be on their their deathbed. Um, and the idea is that the essential phrase is, may my death atone for all of my sins. I mean, I say a little nicer when we're in the hospital and everyone's all distressed, but that's really what it says, right? It really says, may my death atone for all of my sins. So if you think about it, right, death is the greatest penalty um, any of us can undergo, other than maybe a three-game suspension if you're Urban Meyer. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of Big Ten fans here. I see. Anyway, I don't even watch college football. It's on the Holy Sabbath. Um, but but the idea is right that really that that the experience of death in and of itself is traumatic enough that for most people, with the right intent, with the intent for repentance that death has the ability to really wipe the slate clean, right? So in other words, it's not that, right? The classic example is, you know, the you always says, well, you know, the Nazi who accepts his savior goes to heaven and the people he killed didn't. It's a little more complicated than that, right? The issue is, like, I would actually say, like, you can be a murderer, you just, it just really, and, and go to heaven, it's just really hard, right? Just, right? It just requires a lot of repentance and you have to die, right? Sort of like, you know, someone once said, you know, um, you know, what do you what do you have to do to be, you know, what do you have to do to be buried in, in Oakland Cemetery? Well, you have to die, first of all, right? So that, this is kind of along those lines. And to amplify that, the Christian understanding, I've, I've never heard that before, um, that may my death atone for all my sins. The Christian understanding is that Jesus' death atones for all of our sins. Um, but there's also something that you said, uh, the, a murderer can't go to heaven, it's just harder to get there. There's the image in Isaiah, maybe, of the refiner's fire. Um, one of the prophets, one of the major prophets, that uh, I think offers an illustration of that, in that no one wants to get burned, but sometimes a holy fire can burn out the dross and bring out the pure. Um, and so that's a uh, concept that uh, is new to me. That you know, you just wrote you know my January sermon series on. That, so thank you. So we have time for a few more questions, and I feel like we have not gotten a lot of questions from the Methodists. So I really. Don't maybe call in Baptist to ask questions. So, so maybe someone who has not yet asked a question or a table that has not produced a question. Yes.
in the writings of the epistles in the New Testament, there's a lot of language, uh, even in Mark's gospel, where Jesus talks a lot about dying to self, um, that you have to, what, the self, mm, man, I should have asked for five minutes of silence and for everyone to bow their head and close their eyes. Um, no. Loss of ego. It is this not the form of self that we expect. I think we all make our own little gods. We all make our own little deities. We all make our own little idols, idols in big and small ways. Um, and that the true self is one in which we vow to no other idol or deity that we have made. So I, I, if I can kind of build on that, maybe the idea that I would think about heaven as a place of self, but not selfishness. Um, so there is a there is a Hasidic. Uh, so the Hasidics are sort of a Jewish stream within Judaism that tends to be a little bit more mystical. And there is a the, I, there's a Hasidic metaphor that in heaven and hell there is a delicious meal laid out, and there are no elbows. There's a delicious meal laid out at the table and there are no elbows. So think about how you would eat without an elbow. What would you put on the table? No, but so the idea is that in, in hell, right, everyone, you know, is like trying to feed themselves and they can't do it. Whereas in heaven, everyone is feeding each other and it works. So, um, I mean, clearly that is not literally the case, but I think it's a wonderful metaphorical understanding of the difference, right? That So in the Jewish tradition, we have idea of Yetzer HaTov and Yetzer Hara. So Yetzer Tov is the good inclination. Yetzer Hara is the evil or the selfish inclination. And they are often in tension with each other. Um, but the rabbis say, if you ever actually did away with the evil urge here on earth, it would be a disaster. They actually say that once they prayed and the evil urge was, was shut out. And next thing you know, no beggars were born. You couldn't find any fresh eggs. No one would build a house, right? Nothing, if I can quote Gordon Gecko, right? Greed is a little bit good, right? Because without selfishness, no one wants to do anything. But on the, you know, the problem is too much. Um, but that in heaven, right, in God's presence, selfishness is not required as a motivator. Um, the rabbis actually call selfishness the leaven within the dough. Um, and I think Matthew actually calls it, I think it's also referred to that in Matthew's, Matthew as well. Yeah. So the idea is, right, that on, right, the yeast within the dough. That here on earth, right, if you want to make puffy bread, you need a little bit of yeast, too much, not so good. In heaven, the dough just rises due to the loftiness of ourselves. So I, I believe that there is a self in heaven, but not a, not a selfishness. So that is a great question. So just, right, the question is, so, you know, Jews, 
don't believe in a second coming. There's a, I, I have a friends who are theologically um, more traditional than I am from the Jewish side, um, and you know, basically an Orthodox rabbi and evangelical, and they basically called a truce. And they basically said, when the Messiah comes, we will ask him if he's been here before, and then we'll know who's right. <laughs> so, Judaism absolutely has an idea of an end times, absolutely has the idea of a Messiah, and that could actually be a great topic for a, another conversation, but in sort of summary, um, there are, you know, all of the Jewish prophetic texts Many of them talk about an end of days, talk about a restoration of the line of David, talk about a restoration of Jewish sovereignty, and more dramatic things like the dead rising from their graves and so on. Um, and so basically the theological debate, I think at its core between Jews and Christians, is Jews said, you know, Jesus had some great things to say, but didn't check the boxes we would need checked for him to be the Messiah. Right? Whereas Christians said, you know what, even if not everything happened that we would expect to be a Messiah, it's because we weren't ready. And so therefore, we'll wait, he will come back and finish and kind of get, you know, get, you know, the, and, and get the rest of it done. So that's, I think, the fundamental theological debate. Um, Jew, there is a very strong Jewish belief in the coming of a Messiah. And in fact, in Judaism, about every 100 to 150 years, there's actually some group of Jews who decide that their rabbi or their leader um, is the Messiah. So most recently, there's a Jewish movement called Chabad, and they believed that their rabbi was the Messiah, and then he died. And that really threw them into a tailspin. And to this day, that in that movement, some of the synagogues believe that he was the Messiah, and some are like he could have been the Messiah, but there's still a big theological debate within that movement. Well, what do we do now? We thought he was the Messiah, but like there are still people who camp out at his grave waiting for him, like, you know, when you're coming back. So this is, this is a, the, the urge for the Messiah is, is fundamental, and I think that the divide between Jews and Christians is did Jesus check enough of the boxes in terms of the traditional Jewish view to, to fit that role? Would it surprise you to learn that Christians think that they can predict the end of time as well? Probably not. Um, well, Jews are never on time, so... <laughs> um, next time I'll bring my trap set and just hit you with it. <laughs> this is fun. This is fun. I've always wondered um, if it's possible that within the Christian understanding of the second coming of Christ would be the same as the coming of the Jewish Messiah. If somehow in Christ's, in God's ultimate victory, we were both wrong and we were both right. Um, that's not something that I've teased out or you know, studied in depth to speak uh, from a place of authority, but more is a question of what if. Um, what if the things that we look for in our final victories, respectively, uh, tend to be, or can be encapsulated in the same themes and currents of our sense of justice, 
of our sense of shalom, of our sense of life together. And, and that's not something that I know the answer to necessarily, um, but it's always been a what if. Um, it's the same, we're waiting for the same thing, it's just two sides of the same coin. So, you know, for every box that I uncheck, 
a Christian theologian who was devoted enough could find a way to recheck the box and we can kind of go back and forth like that. But that's sort of a summary answer, and I don't know if you want to. Uh, I would say that, I don't know how it ties into the question necessarily, Donna, but I think in our Christian tradition, we do a disservice when we separate the identity of Jesus from the people of Israel. Um, and that leads to some of the world's worst atrocities to forget Jesus's Jewish identity. Um, and when we just claim Christ as the Messiah um, without rooting his identity through the chosen people of Israel, and those of us on the outside at best being adopted into the family, um, is when some of the problems come to play in the world. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, we check all the boxes, but to separate Jesus's identity from the people of Israel does a disservice to the understanding of, uh, I think, what we are at our best. What is when we die, we go to heaven, and what does the new earth look like? Um, and it's uh, it's really one of those that is, as you kind of broadcast the answer, it is kind of unanswerable. But uh, the Second Corinthians chapter five, verse sixteen and seventeen, God is reconciling all things into God's self, um, and the new creation. Um, John Wesley says will all be restored to God's final desire. So that's um, as Broad and succinct and uh, biblically accurate, I can be and still be in the United Methodist minister. You know, I, I, I would say that, um, you know, on, on the original Star Trek, Scotty would always say, I cannot change the laws of physics, right? But, but God can, right? So, in, in fact, one of the big debates in sort of Jewish, Jewish theology and philosophy and thought is. Do the laws of logic apply to God, right? Just sort of the basic idea is that you have axioms and proof and disproof and proof by contradiction. Does that even apply to God or not? So, you know, my my argument would be that one of the key aspects of the end times is that even things that we take for granted, like causality, right? There are actions with causes and effects that, that may not be the case anymore. Um, you know, the, and so when I think about heaven, I mean, I don't think heaven has a physical location, right, where, you know, if you travel 47 light years over there, that's, you know, make a left, you know, you'll get to heaven, right? Um, you know, but, but I think that rather heaven is a state of existence, which is independent from our physical form. So... When I was first learning this stuff, it was harder to explain, but actually with teenagers, like, it's actually very simple. It's like, oh, you mean I'm gonna be uploaded to the cloud, right? Like, you know, you're sort of leaving the physical, you know, sort of container that you're familiar with, 
and you continue to be, but in some different form, right? That, right? I don't know where my Google search history lives, and frankly, I hope no one our friends out, right? But no, but I, you know, wherever, wherever it may be, right? It's there somewhere, right? It's nobody, right? Nobody else. So, so I think in some sense the same thing might be true when you talk about heaven or a world to come. That it, it may really trying to explain it in terms of you know this parking lot in the world to become will become another parking lot. I don't know, right? It, it, that, I think we. <coughs> yeah. Uh, earlier you had mentioned that heaven and hell are in the same place, and I don't know if your answer just kind of got at that, but I would like you to explain that a little bit better. And then also, from a Jewish perspective, obviously Christians purport that Jesus was raised from the dead. How do the Jews believe in that as well, or what is your take on that? So the, the classic Jewish belief is that Jesus was not raised from the dead. I mean, that is a fundamental... <coughs> That's, that's, that's a difference in belief, and that has implications, right? One of the things that I will admit that I have never totally understood in terms of Christian thought is the, the Jesus as Messiah versus Jesus as Son of God and how those ideas overlap. And I understand that different theologians may say different things, but sort of fundamentally, the where, where Jews and Christians absolutely part ways is the divinity of Jesus, right? So that Jews can recognize the wisdom of Jesus' teachings. Um, it's actually, for a long time, Jews really shunned the Christian Bible because, you know, Christians didn't always treat us very nicely, but also, like, we're like, this is a heretical book. And really, in the last hundred years, Jewish scholars have said, look, the Christian Bible is, these are stories about Jews and Jews who they and their followers end up going in a different direction, but nevertheless, right, these are people who were speaking in Hebrew and Aramaic for the most part, and and who were talking about the Jewish Bible. Um, right? Jesus never quotes the New Testament, he's quoted in the New Testament. He often quotes the Jewish Bible. So so Jews have started kind of saying, well, what can we learn about ourselves by reading the Christian Bible? But that's a relatively new phenomenon, and paralleled with Christians saying, well, gee, if we are a branch off the tree of Judaism, you know, what do we learn by looking back at the trunk? So in terms of heaven and hell, um, again, I think a lot of what we would say, what, what Jews would say about it is really more metaphor. In other words, I would not, you know, not, there's not literally, like, horns and pitchforks, but, you know, the idea that the world after this one can have peace or suffering in it. I think is as, you know it's sort of as far as as one can, as far as I'm willing to go without having to resort to language that you know you have to peel back the onion. There's a story uh, that Jesus tells as a parable where there's the rich man and there's Lazarus, and um, both die at the same time. And the rich man goes to Sheol, to hell, and Lazarus goes to heaven. And the rich man, who interestingly enough is not named, um, cries out to Lazarus. And this is not the Lazarus that you know we claim Jesus raised from the dead. 
Lazarus, uh, please plead on my behalf to my family uh, that they might not receive this punishment. So when heaven and hell are the same thing, I think it's more of they exist within the same time space continuum, um, even though they aren't the same. There's interaction between the two uh, based upon this parable that Jesus says where Lazarus, who is in heaven, is uh, there, there's this pleading from this rich man to say, please uh, go back and warn my family of the judgment that is to come. And uh, then Jesus says, well, I gave you the prophets and I gave you all these things. Why do you, you know, think that sending a ghost is going to change people's minds? Um, and I would just add that to your response as well. Um, I saw one back there, I saw, saw one here and one there, and then close it and you come find us afterwards. Um, or follow, you know, Rabbi Feller on our Yeah, exactly. So, with Judaism almost 6,000 years old, we've had people passing away, we've had souls going to heaven for all this time. Is there any teachings at all about any of these souls? This question about heaven and earth has been around forever. Any of these souls making any effort to come back and answer these questions for us? So the story goes, there's a, a, a kosher restaurant on the Lower East Side, and Morris, the waiter, passes away. And they hold a seance, and they try to you know, bring the soul of Morris, the waiter, to come back and they're trying everything. They bring this mystic and that psychic and whatever. And finally, they're like, Morris, why won't you answer us? He says, it's not my table. <laughs> um, <laughs> so here's, here's the thing. In the Bible, there is actually a story of seeking to consult with the dead. So King Saul, who lived a very troubled life, it was on the eve of his battle with the Philistines, and he goes to the witch of Endor um, and asks her to summon the spirit of Samuel to advise him on the battle tomorrow. And it's like Samuel's like, oh, you're going to lose. You're going to lose big time. See you tomorrow. Right? <laughs> um, literally, right? Um, so, you know, that biblical story, right, one takes on face value. The book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus as well nonstop warn the Jews do not consult with necromancers and sorcerers and those kinds of things. And what's interesting is most Jewish sources before the Middle Ages say it's not because those things don't work. They say because it's not what God wants you to do. Um, so I will say, right, I am, you know, there's, there's this idea in rabbinic literature that's sort of what's called a pargode, there's sort of a curtain that divides the living from the dead that is not easily penetrated. Um, I will say that sometimes when I'm visiting someone who is on the brink of death, who is on their deathbed, that they will have visions that they will be talking to deceased relatives. And I don't know that that means that like Aunt Rachel is actually in the room, but whatever the boundary is between life and death is thinned just enough, right? That they are having some perception back and forth. 
Um, you know, that being said, I don't know what the afterlife is like. No one has ever come back to complain, right? There's some, there's some limit. There.
So I want to say this has been uh, a treat for me. Um, Reverend Martin and I have just started getting to know each other. He may regret it, but I'm really appreciating it. Um, and I really uh, appreciate the chance to develop relationships between our communities. And hopefully this is something that will continue to build, not just as we join in fellowship together, but perhaps opportunities to engage in other acts of kindness and other you know, what we first know is we disagree on many things, but we agree on a lot of things that are very important as well. And, uh, you know, that we will find opportunities as communities to do good together. Um, so I really want to thank Sandy Springs United Methodist for going out on a limb to try something new with us. And um, it's really been a lot of fun for me. I hope for everyone here as well. Um, and just a reminder, Five Seasons uh, is very generous to us in providing the space. Please make sure that uh, your servers... Uh, can feel your appreciation in, in every reasonable way possible. And, and just a, a word of appreciation. I just lucked into this, I think, by being the next closest Goyim uh, to <laughs> Rabbi Heller. So, yeah. Um, um, no, but it is, it is uh, good to be in fellowship together. Our next one's January 14th. Uh, Topic to be determined, um, but thank you all very much. And thank you.